Welcome to the Vulva Diaries with host Dr. Amanda Selk, bringing you the 101 on vulvovaginal health. So today we have Dr. Jacob Bornstein, again, a professor of OB-GYN in Israel, previous president of the ISSVD and chair of the Terminology Committee, long-term vulvologist. Hello, Dr. Bornstein. Hi, uh, Dr. Selk. Nice to be with you again. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to have you. So as I noted, Dr. Bornstein is the chair of the Terminology Committee, and today we're going to talk about some of the terminology of vulvodynia. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? To be a chairman of a terminology committee is a big pain, big pain. Why? You know, with terminology, everybody understands something. It's not like you're talking about nuclear science or some kind of translational medicine. No. So with terminology, everybody knows and everybody is ready uh, to argue. So being a chairman of the terminology committee is more a political Role than scientific. So let me tell you about uh, the 2015 consensus terminology. In about 2015, I think it was Andrew Goldstein who started talking about uh, changing the terminology. He had other ideas about what causes uh, vulvodynia and gave us the idea of maybe we will change the terminology. Now, there was a big, big objection to that. The people who wrote the previous terminology said, why do you need to change it? Uh, nothing has changed. We still have an enigma called vulvodynia. We don't know the cause. Uh, nothing has changed, so why changing the terminology? Well, the truth is different because the previous terminology in 2003, so since 2003 to 2015, about 12, 13 years, uh, many studies have been published, and in these studies, groups of researchers actually were trying to explore the cause, the etiology of vulvodynia. It was still accepted that we not, don't know for sure the cause, but we had a feeling, and many had a feeling, that we are approaching there, and we may know what the cause is. Now, my group, for example, we tried to explore the neurological causes of vulvodynia. In our studies, we found hyperinnervation, or what was later called neuroproliferation, in these tissues. When we stained them for what we call PGP 9.5, it is a stain of the delicate nerves, we could find hyperinnervation in both the dermis and into the epithelium. Those little nerves were entering the epithelium. So we assumed that it is hyperinnervation. We then found an increase in the mast cells, and the mast cells are secreting heparanas, and we found that the heparanas dissolved the tissue and let the nerves go in. Anyway, that was our uh, hypothesis, and it was verified by many studies. And other studies were talking about inflammation, and, of course, studies have talked about uh, the psychosexual cause of vulvodynia. So there were many theories, and we felt that those theories are set aside. Nobody talks about them, and they were not updated in the terminology. So we gathered together. We decided to discuss a possibility of new terminology. 
So we assembled a representative from three international societies, the ISSVD, the ISSWSH, International Society for the Study of Women Health, and the International Pelvic Pain Society. So these people actually uh, were the experts on vulvar pain at that time. We all met in Annapolis, beautiful Annapolis, and we were sitting for a few days. The first day, each one of us gave a talk about what he thinks is the etiopathology of vulvodynia. So there was a talk about inflammation and a talk about neuroproliferation and talk about comorbidities and so on and so forth. And then there was a big dispute because everybody was pushing to his or her side. We ended that meeting in Annapolis, but with an understanding, it was my suggestion, of the way we will construct the terminology. And we all went home with missions to review the literature and submit literature reviews and decide and give a level of evidence for each condition that is causing or what we think is causing vulvodynia. So what's important about the terminology? The first one, the definition itself changed a little bit. Now we're talking about pain. In 2003, we talked about some inconvenience and so on. So now we're talking about pain, and it's a pain of at least three months. Then we have descriptors of pain, and of course it's primary or secondary, spontaneous or provoked. We know all that. But the main part of the terminology, in my opinion, was a table of possible associated factors. It's a table of eight conditions, for example, hormonal, genetic, by the way, because we found some polymorphisms in some of the genes, neuroproliferation, musculoskeletal, for example, pelvic floor conditions. So we knew that all these may be associated with vulvodynia. We ended up writing the draft for the paper and we presented it in the ISSVD meeting in New York. The terminology committee presented the proposal for the new terminology. A big argument started. One of the previous past presidents, I don't want to mention his name, came to us and said that there is no way he can allow in the terminology of vulvar pain to have a list of possible etiologies because it's not a terminology and it was not 100% approved or we don't know for 100% that these are the causes. So again, a big scandal. <laughs> we had a long, bitter fights because we saw that it is very important. And as I told you in the beginning, the most important role of the terminology chairman is being political. So I came up with an idea. And if you go back to my terminology paper, which I am the first author in 2015, that table who is talking about the possible causes of vulvar pain is not termed terminology. It is an appendix to the terminology. Appendix to the terminology that past president was able to swallow. Everybody were happy. And that paper was published with an appendix. But in my opinion, Dr. Selk, that appendix is the most important part of the terminology and not many readers get it. Because that appendix 
as I said when we talked about vestibulectomy, that appendix led to a paradigm change. And the idea is, I'm not saying that it's already established, but the idea is, if you have vulvodynia, and you can determine what is the main associated factor, let's say, theoretically, you examine a patient and you say the reason is neuroproliferative, nothing else. Then you treat the neuroproliferation. So you may have medications that affect nerve pain, and if that doesn't help, you can offer vestibulectomy to remove the tissue with the nerve. If you can tell in a different patient that she suffers from pelvic instability, from musculoskeletal tension, of course you don't operate on her, you send her to physical therapy. And you encourage her to continue with physical therapy until it helps, because you know this is her problem. And if you find that that patient, maybe the reason is associated with oral contraceptive use, so either you stop the oral contraceptive if this is acceptable, or you treat her with topical estradiol cream, and so on and so forth. Now, I admit that we are not there yet. I cannot tell in every patient with vulva pain what is the associated factor, and if there is only one associated factor. The idea is to find the main associated factor. Of course, in some women there are few, but treat the patient according to the main associated factor. Now, not long ago, you may notice that we published meta-analysis, and we took into account all published treatment of provoked vulvodynia. We found no treatment had a significant outcome. No treatment. So, as of today, no treatment has been proved to affect vulva pain, even not surgery, to my disappointment. But if you come to think about it again, the reason is because we did not pick the patient right. Because if you offer surgery to a patient with neuroproliferation who does not have pelvic instability, who does not have musculoskeletal reason, there is a chance that you will be much more successful. By the way, of course, some of the reasons that we couldn't find significance in the treatment is because the studies were not done right. Either they were very small or the criteria were not clear and so on and so forth. But the main reason, in my opinion, is that in the past, there was one protocol to each patient with vulvar pain. Until today, you go to somebody, a physician, he says, well, you have vestibulitis or provoked vulvodynia. Here is my protocol. You start with A, you go to B, you go to C, you go to D, and in the end, you go to surgery, which today, I think, is not correct. Today, you try to tailor the treatment according to the associated factor, and I think this is the main contribution of the 2015 terminology, which was published, by the way, in three simultaneous journals, if you remember, and all of them count. <laughs> My dean said, you can mention all of them in your CV. Oh, lucky you. <laughs> Uh, it was in the Journal of Lower Genital Tract Disease. That was the primary journal. The Green Journal asked us to publish there for this audience. So it was published in the same months in the Green Journal as well. And then the Journal of Sexual Medicine published the same paper uh, again. And it says simultaneous publication. So it's, uh, it's kosher. And I'm pretty sure for listeners, it's open access. So people can hear it. So do you think that things have changed a lot in the last few years? 
Uh, not everybody adapted it or not everybody accepted it. There's a problem if a patient with vulvar pain end up seeing a physical therapist. Of course, the physical therapist will offer physical therapy. And if she goes to somebody who's doing only surgery, very soon he will perform surgery. It's very hard to change people's concepts. Very hard. By the way, you know, in my book of vulvar disease, I entitled Vulvar Disease Breaking the Myths. And this is one of the myths that I broke. That, For example, that Fulvodinia needs one protocol because you need to change the protocol according to what you find with the woman. I tried to preach using the new terminology and using the new paradigms. It will take time, but we will get there. Yeah, it's amazing for such a common issue how, as you say, a lot of the studies are very small. I think it's getting more attention, which is good for patients. I think the terminology helps people think about the different causes because vulvodynia, like the word, is really a descriptive word, right? The Latin pain of the vulva, right? So, yes, like glossodynia and pleurodynia is pain in that area. I sometimes tell patients medicine is just big words as descriptors, but we don't actually understand, you know, and we're still working on it. And it helps them a little bit just to have a name attached to something. Well, you know, the names. The way they name this condition has changed during the years. And I mostly like the term burning vulva. <laughs> you know that the ISSVD had a burning vulva task force. I didn't know that. <laughs> well, you know the story. From 1928 until 1975, something like that, it's 50 years, nothing was mentioned in the medical literature about vulva pain. Before 1928, there were clear mentions in the books of Skinny and Thomas. You can find clear description of what we today think is provoked vulvodynia. When the examining finger came in touch with the tissue, the patient cried out loud and so on. But since 1928 to 78, so about 50 years, no mention. Where did it disappear? Nobody understands. Probably it went to the sex therapist and they kept it with them, unsuccessfully, I would say. You never know how many tragedies over the years happen in couples where the woman suffered from vulvodynia and could not have intercourse because of the pain. These days, it was hidden. Nobody talked about it. As I said, it's a shame disease. For some reason, in 1975, when the ISSVD was already founded, Barber Society was founded in 1970, so in 1975, in one of the World Congress, a physician from New York, uh, in the discussion time, she got up and said, you talked about this and that, but have any of you know a condition where a patient has pain in the introitus? She felt like a unicorn, <laughs> unicorn pain. She actually gave a paper, unicorn pain. And that was the beginning of the era where we came to recognize again that a condition like that exists. And since then, everything is a history because we have, as you said, so many groups work on vulvodynia. Grants have been given. Even as patient foundations were founded and pressed on the NIH to allocate grants for that. So now there's a lot and lot of research. And I'm glad that the terminology helped research as well. Because first, we have the same language. Two, 
Every research group know that they need to research along the eight associated factors because this is what they need to prove that any of and each of the associated factor is indeed the cause of vulvodynia. Everybody is trying to prove the cause of vulvodynia. So I'm glad that the terminology gave them a good pathway to work in. Yeah, I think part of it is that causes are different in different people, as you say. Some studies that haven't worked out, I wonder, are because they lumped people with different causes all in together. That's correct. Do you have anything else you'd like to tell us about it? No. Next time uh, that we'll meet, I'll tell you about other terminology, because as you see, behind every terminology, there is a secret. <laughs> Lots of good history. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you very much, Amanda, and thank you for having me, and I hope the audience will like what I'm saying. Thank you. Again, that's Dr. Jacob Bornstein, Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology and Chairman in Israel, previous President of the ISSBD and current Chair of the Terminology Committee. Thank you.